As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, it's Wendy. And it's Jess. And you're listening to the Food Heaven Podcast, your online resource for delicious and nutritious living. Welcome to another episode of the Food Heaven Podcast. Today we have our girl, Maya, who's a registered dietitian specializing in chronic disease prevention. Maya shares her approachable, real food-based solutions to millions of people through regular speaking engagements and as a nutrition expert on the Dr. Oz Show and Good Morning America. Maya is also an adjunct professor at NYU where she teaches nutrition. We're super excited to talk to Maya today about medical bias, negative healthcare narratives that affect people of color, and how to honor culture through food. We're also going to deep dive into getting your kids on board with making meals that you're excited about and that your kids are excited about too. So welcome to the podcast, Maya. Hey, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Jess. Hi. (laughs) Hey, girl. So for people who aren't familiar with your work, they might not know that you had a career change and that you haven't always been a dietitian. (laughs) So can you talk to us a little bit about that, why you got into nutrition and what you were doing before you were a dietitian? Yeah, absolutely. So I did my undergrad in experimental theater and philosophy, um, two things near and dear to my heart, but uh, they just, you know, living in New York City, it wasn't feasible for me to continue living that philosophic lifestyle and eating <laughs> on air. So, <laughs> you know, fast forward some years later, I decided to kind of look into the field of dietetics. I really moved toward it because I've always loved running and I was training for the Boston Marathon at the time and logging miles and miles and miles. And I literally one day was like, what happens with all that food that I eat? Because I'm always hungry. I wonder what's going on inside my body. And on one of those long runs, I was like, I should study that. I should see what that really means. And so I kind of ran into nutrition, literally. I love it. Yeah, I also had a career change because I used to be a journalist and decided after, I don't know, maybe like three or four years that I wanted to go into nutrition. I feel like a lot of people get into nutrition as a second career because it's not something you really know about. (laughs) I didn't know about it until later. So that's such a cool story. So I know that, you know, you're a veteran dietitian and you focus on chronic disease prevention. You also do a lot of media work. What are some examples of bias language that you see with healthcare professionals when they are working with people who have chronic conditions? Yes. So, you know, a lot of patients will come to me and they'll say, I sought you out specifically because you're a woman of color, you know, and I had a negative experience with a provider 
And so I'm coming to you because I want somebody who can actually just see me for me and hear my story. And what many of them have kind of, you know, retold to me in their experiences are, for example, some of my transgender patients talk about being misgendered by their providers, right? Or their providers make an assumption based on their individual perception of the patient. Maybe that provider has a stereotype, you know, or a belief about a group of people and they don't even give the individual in front of them the opportunity to be an individual, right? They have that predisposed judgment and they're completely going to run with it and just not hear what's in front of them. Sometimes they will even talk about the illness rather than the patient, right? So they use that diagnosis as an adjective. So they'll refer to the person themselves as not being normal because of the diagnosis or telling them that they're poorly controlling that diagnosis rather than talking to them about their understanding of management. Or they don't even ask the person, you know, why are you here? What do you understand about the diagnosis that you've received? Is there anything that you want to know from me? It's all coming from the provider being in the position of power and kind of talking at the patient rather than being an advocate or you know, helping them along the way or simply being part of their healthcare journey, letting the patient be the driver and you're there to assist. That's such a great point. That's something that we used to see all the time when we were working in clinics where it wasn't patient-centered. As much as patient-centered care is like drilled into our training, it's like no one's really doing it in the healthcare system. And it's so frustrating. There are practitioners who are, but it's like we received this maybe like a few hours of training in this topic. And then you, yeah, providers just decide to do their own thing because they do feel like they're the ones that are in a position of power when it comes to patient care. It's really unfortunate. And for patients, it's very overwhelming too. Like we, I mean, we've been told time and time again when our patients come to see us, like, I don't even know. I don't even know that I have a diagnosis or I don't even know what my diagnosis means. Or like Mm -hmm. you said, they're just being talked to in a way where they feel disrespected or they don't feel acknowledged. So when patients are interacting with their practitioners, Can you talk about some of the ways that they can address this bias with their provider, like especially when it comes to things like race, culture, size? What are some practical things that patients can do to feel more empowered? Absolutely. So I always say to my patients, if you're working with a provider, specifically a primary care provider that you trust and you have a relationship with them, that's an opportunity to give honest feedback, right? If it's somebody that you trust and you're willing to kind of go deep and invest in that healthcare relationship. And now I recognize that that might not be the case for everyone. Now, it might be more likely, and this is me making an assumption, that this is in a larger healthcare setting. Because, And the only reason I make that assumption is because very few of us have the same provider that we've had since we were 17, 18, or 19. You know what I mean? That kind of family practice is diminishing, and we tend to be more in larger healthcare settings where there's a group of providers, and we may see one or four people within that setting. If that's the case and you don't have a relationship with that provider, I say for the patients themselves, this is the opportunity to ask for a meeting with a supervisor or someone who can actually make institutional change. And the reason I say you want the institutional change is because 
everybody comes with a certain level of bias, right? It's a question of whether or not they're willing to unpack their own predisposed or preconditioned notions and whether or not the institution is willing to put the effort in to help them do just that. If they are, offer them feedback about that experience and then be very intentional and explicit in asking for a referral to a provider who has had that cultural competency training. By asking for that, you, the patient, are saying, listen, I have the expectation that this is something that the institution is going to engage in, and I want someone who's had that training. Even if it's only the two or the three hours, you're saying, I expect that this is something that you all are going to do for me. And if it's, you know, and then also I say, go ahead and ask for someone who has a reputation for being inclusive, someone who has a reputation for being patient-centered, and don't be afraid to leave a healthcare setting and go elsewhere. I also think it's really important to talk to your own support system, right? Talk about those experiences because so many times, many of us experience these microaggressions and it's really traumatic, right? And so sometimes it's, you know, stepping away from the provider and also talking within our community so that we can get resources from, you know, our family, our friends, our sisters, aunts, brothers, so on and so forth. Yeah, I'm just thinking of an experience that I had at a doctor's office, um, I feel like it was six, seven years ago. And I was there because I had chronic daily headaches. And I remember the doctor, Mm -hmm. it was just this, yeah, this male doctor who was a complete jerk. And he made me cry because he was like, I don't think there's anything wrong with you. He was like, you are just Mm. depressed and looking for attention. Literally said that. Yeah, I was like, I was traumatized from that. And I feel like if I, especially being like a woman of color, I feel like if I would have went there with my boyfriend mm-hmm. at the time, like he wouldn't have felt as comfortable being as right. rude and mean and making all these assumptions. I also asked him to test my B12 and he was mm-hmm. like, oh, you don't need to test that. And I was like, well, why do you mm. think I don't need to test that? He's like, oh, well, that's only for people who follow like vegetarian and vegan diets okay, well, that's me. So you are making all these assumptions about me and my health and what I'm doing and what, you know, so it just, it, it really pisses me off so much when I hear these stories from people where they, they have been traumatized. And it's the thing that's interesting too, it's because you would assume that in those moments, it's easy to kind of stand up for yourself. But for me, it was almost like really paralyzing. And I felt because there was Mm -hmm. like that power dynamic and I wasn't in this space where it's like, now I question everything and I feel more comfortable, but I was paralyzed. And even after I really wanted to write a letter, it was at a big healthcare institution in California. I wanted to write a letter or even tell him like how he was horrific. And it was like one of the most horrific experiences of my life. But I still felt like, oh no, like you can't go again or question the doctor or whatever. So I, yeah, I really Mm -hmm. appreciate you saying that. Kind of a follow-up to that. Like what have you seen in terms of with black and brown folks, what are some of like the stereotypes or negative health narratives that are kind of associated with us? And then why are, why is that problematic? Mm -hmm. Well, so I should say that, and this is before I even answer the question, there was a time in my practice where I made the intentional choice to have all of my referrals, external referrals, be to providers who have made it their mission to focus on dismantling racism and bias so that I don't perpetuate or it's my intention not to perpetuate the stereotypes that are out there and to put my patients into situations where they have 
negative experiences. So that's something that I'm very, very aware of with the providers that I network with and refer my patients to. Some of those providers, one of which actually is extraordinary nurse practitioner, Juliet Blount, who did some beautiful research at Duke on um, implicit bias in healthcare. She's fantastic. That's just off topic. I think she's extraordinary. But to your question, so what are some of these things? So what I see is this internalized racism. It becomes harmful when we hear things like, you know, Black and brown people are at the top of the charts when it comes to diabetes. Black and brown people are at the top of the charts when it comes to hypertension. You know, black and brown people, they don't eat well. Black and brown people, they're all obese oh, or they're all morbidly obese, right? So these labels are attached to us. It becomes harmful because we begin to believe that that narrative, and yes, there's data and statistics, but is applicable to all. It's not a monolith, Right. And one of the things that never happens when we look at those narratives is kind of how did we get there, right? Right, that's what I was thinking. Exactly, right? Why are the rates that way, right? What's happening in terms of institutionalized and systemic healthcare bias, right? What is happening in neighborhoods when grocery stores are leaving and dollar stores and bodegas are the majority? What is happening when we don't have access to growing food ourselves? CSAs. We had CSAs in the South and Latin America and the Caribbean before it was a quote unquote foodie thing. What is happening when people are telling us that we don't eat fruits and vegetables when we do, right? So that's part of what we start to begin and internalize and believe that, oh, that's not for us, right? It becomes damaging. We see high rates of depression, increased stress, shorter lives. We become less likely to seek out care because we've had such negative experiences. So just like a personal story, I have two children and I went to the pediatrician with one of them. And, you know, the pediatrician asks a number of questions about your family and kind of how you are. And the pediatrician that we were seeing this day made kind of a statement along the lines of my children must eat fast food just based on what we look like. I didn't, you know, I said we eat fruits and vegetables and, you know, I'm able to, you know, have my children have a balanced diet. Of course, I left that pediatrician and now we see a woman of color, Dr. Brioche, who is extraordinary. But, you know, it happens to all of us. And just like you said, I think it, it was you, just that you were paralyzed in that moment. You know, I was in front of my children, so I didn't speak up. Mm-hmm. I didn't say in that moment that this, this pediatrician who happened to be a white person and was in a position of power talking down to me about the choices that I must make or making assumptions, right? I wasn't able to have that discussion or hadn't figured out how to do it in a way that would be impactful and meaningful while shutting the pediatrician down in front of my kids, right? And so, you know, I think that it happens all the time, the microaggressions, right? And it's just damaging and it's exhausting. Yeah. You brought up really great points and I was just like nodding my head so hard when you were talking about um yeah like how we're disproportionately affected by chronic conditions but there's never a conversation about systemic racism and how it affects our access 
to right. fresh food and how it affects our access to quality health care. And like all these things are never talked about when talking about all of the chronic conditions that disproportionately affect our communities. That's so important. And also how we've been mm-hmm. doing this, like the CSAs and like the local, yes. you know, like this is stuff that we've been practicing since the beginning of time. Right. Right. And you know, another thing that I feel like too, that happens, you know, the word agency, like when we talk about black agency or black and brown agency or people of color agency or feminist agency, you know, we as individuals, sometimes we're made to believe that we don't have the ability to make free choices because all of the dominant power structures around class, race, gender, identity, sexual orientation, they really work so hard to diminish our decisions, that we lose that agency. And that's part that has to be factored in from my perspective into these conversations. I want to take a break from our regularly scheduled programming to tell you about the musings of me and my husband while lying in bed. Non-X-rated, I promise. So the other day we were lying in bed And he made a comment. He said, are you wearing a new lotion or scent? And I was like, no, I'm not. But why? (laughs) And he said, oh, because it just smells really good. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I think it's actually my new deodorant. And they happen to be a podcast sponsor this week. The brand is Native Deodorant. And I'm going to like actually open up my my deodorant right now for you guys and smell it because it smells so good. Oh my God. If there was a smell that was my favorite smell in the whole wide world, legitimately, it would be eucalyptus. I don't know what it is. Ever since college, me and my BFF from college, we would always buy like this eucalyptus and mint body scrub. And so ever since then, I just have this really good association with that smell. The smell alone is enough for me to use it, number one. But the best part is, and the most important part, is that it actually works. Again, this is coming from somebody who has had multiple encounters with natural deodorant that never work. And I'm always wondering who the funky person is in the room and then realize that it's me. Um, So just to have like my husband make that comment, I was like, oh, okay, I was smelling good. And I had been wearing it like all day at that point. So if you guys want to give it a try, feel free to use our discount code to save 20% off. The website is nativedeodorant.com and the discount code is foodheaven. The cool thing about this deodorant is that it doesn't contain any aluminum, also no parabens, no talc, and it's made from you know ingredients that are found in nature like coconut oil, shea butter, and things like that. So go on over to nativedeodorant.com, use the promo code foodheaven for 20% off at checkout and let's get back to the episode. I want to talk a little bit about culture and food with you because the last time that we met up, which was actually the first time, I feel like I've known you for so long, but it was the first time um, and the last time that we met up. You were talking to me about like all the foods that you're making and how 
um, you have like a Haitian and Trinidadian background, like with your mom and your dad mm-hmm. and all. Of, yeah, like all of your recipes. I was just like, oh, my God, this sounds so good. <laughs> and it really sounded like you incorporate a lot of your culture in the kitchen. So can we talk a little bit about that? Like some of your favorite ways to incorporate culture and to incorporate flavor into the dishes that you make? Because so many of our listeners hit us up and they're like, oh, well, you know, how can we make healthy, balanced food actually tastes good? How can we incorporate the flavors that we grew up eating into the foods that we make and just prepare them in a more balanced way? So what are some of the ways that you do that? Absolutely. So growing up, I traveled a lot to Trinidad and Tobago and Jamaica, coincidentally. Um, I've only been to Haiti once just because of the kind of political unrest. Um, But I did, I was able to take my children and that was, you know, it was wonderful and fantastic. I have these really vivid memories of family parties with lots of food and spice and flavor from a young, young, young age. So there was never this idea that the kid gets something that is unflavored or unseasoned and not spicy. And then the adults have separate food. It was always Everybody has everything together. And so when I started cooking for my children, I made everything that I would eat. And so I varied the spice palette. I used cumin, I used turmeric, I used coriander, I used, you know, green seasoning that I, I don't even know if I should say this, but I bring back from Trinidad and Tobago. And <laughs> <laughs> I feel Girl. like someone's going to come and get me for that. <laughs> but, you I'd know, be bringing I use... like all types of, like I'd be bringing plants, mangoes, all types of <laughs> like crazy things in my luggage when I go to the DR. I'm like, I'm going to get fined. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I know. I know. The last time I came back, I brought like cassava, plantain, flour, chickpea, all of this stuff. And there's this big sign. And I was like, oh, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I really cook with those flavors in my kitchen. And if you come into my house and I've just done a cooking session, you will smell it from downstairs. And I think that that's important, right? That we can smell food and that it's okay to have your home smell like food. Because some, <laughs> I know some folks who are like, oh, well, I don't want my house to smell like food. For me, I'm That's like, if I to open the window, it's no problem. And, you know, look, I cook from the whole diaspora. I will make, you know, teff and millet porridge in the morning. I will make corn cakes, you know, for lunch. I'll make curry tofu. I have a vegetarian son who's leaning toward vegan, even though the rest of us eat meat. So, you know, I'll do curry tofu. But for me, it would probably be curry goat, truth be told. And I actually don't make that many modifications. I'd say the biggest thing that I do is increase the ratio of plants. Mm, So probably, let's say if a recipe traditionally would call for one vegetable, I'll triple it. And then I'm fine with that. Because just feel like that's a great way to, you know, get some extra nutrients in. But most of the foods that we eat, I I feel that they are inherently healthy and balanced. Like a palau is fantastic. It's rice, it's peas. There's some vegetable. If you want to add chicken, you can. If you don't, then you leave it vegetarian. And I, I think that that's a beautiful, wonderful, nourishing, belly-filling meal that I feel good about. So that's kind of, you know, I cook like that in my house. And I just do that for my children, my friends. I hope you both come over, come hang out in the backyard. Yes, sure. Well, I'll cook for you. 
this summer. <laughs> I'm in there. <laughs> nice. So I was just on your pay on your website, which is gorgeous, by the way, and looking at your cute kids. And I know you have. You said you had a family of four. So, what are just some practical things that you can do, or that you recommend to get your family on board for enjoying more balanced meals? We get this question a lot in terms of kids, mm-hmm. and we always say, "Well, we don't have kids." I mean, we have worked in pediatrics, but as a mom and also a dietitian, what do you do? So I always have to couch this in that I refer to where I live as the Brooklyn bubble. It's this gorgeous, you know, multicultural place where people are open and inclusive. And I recognize that that's not the majority of what's happening in this country. I also recognize the way that I am able to procure food is not the majority of what's happening. So I couch that in this is my experience. Early on, what we did in terms of food is that we were part of a CSA, which is Community Supported Agriculture. And I would bring my children with me to volunteer at the CSA and also do pickups of the produce. And so they were around the food. And one of the things that would naturally happen is that stuff would get off the truck. And as we were unloading from the farmer, one kid would be like, what is that? Can I take a bite? And we were always like, of course you can. Right. So there was never anything that was off the table. I mean, everything from mint to scallion, you know, not many people are going to just bite into a scallion like that. But I always said, go for it, because it really opened up this idea that you could try anything and, you know, open up your palate. Late after the CSA, we kind of transitioned to the farmer's market in our neighborhood, um, And we were going there as we would go to the park with the dog. And that was very nice because, you know, they really encourage you at the farmer's market to try stuff. So if there's prepared food, they may have a little tasting table out and you can try things there. Now, these days, what our food life really looks like is the food co-op. So my daughter and I, she's my homie. We roll deep and we go grocery shopping together. And I have started to let them pick out kind of what they want. And I give them, you know, options. I'll say, okay, well, we need vegetables. What five vegetables do you want? We need fruits. What three fruits do you want? We need yogurts. Can you pick out two yogurts? We need milk. Uh, And we drink milk in my house. Do you want to pick out milk? Now I want a non-dairy one. Which one do you want? So by giving them these options, I'm including them in the shopping, the procurement. And then, you know, even at the food co-op, When I do my shift, sometimes I'll bring my daughter with me and she'll be there. And she says, well, you know, why do we have to volunteer? I said, because we're part of a food co-op and to, you know, to get our food, we need to volunteer our time. So I really, as my friends joke, like you're in deep, you're living the life deep, deep, (laughs) you know. So I kind of emulate and model that for my kids with options, right? Now, at the same time, I am the mom who if it's summer or even winter and, you know, my kids wake up and they'll see a piece of chocolate or something in the fridge. And they're like, can I have that at breakfast time? I'll say, it's your choice. Make a choice if you want to have it or not. And sometimes they'll say yes. And sometimes they're like, I'd rather have it later. So I really try to do balance in my home, I love you know, that. and just make the options yeah, appealing so yeah. that it's, you know, the vegetable is just as exciting as the chocolate mousse. Right. And really involving them in the entire process. And I'm sure with cooking too, like kids get so excited when you involve them and like making the food. And I feel like they just appreciate the dish so much more. Um, So that's also a really good way to get kids on board with eating the meals that you're actually Mm -hmm. making. Absolutely. 
Maya, tell us about your three top foods in the kitchen. Okay. So this is really funny because one of them is not a food at all and it has nothing to do with anyone except for me. So I'll start with the food. I'd say onion, garlic, and ginger, they go together. Of course. Mm -hmm. The reason is because it's like how you start a pot, right? Exactly. You know what I mean? If you're cooking, it's like you start the pot with that. And it really, they show up in my food all the time. I personally am salt sensitive. So I don't use a lot of sodium in my food preparation. So I rely really heavily on those kind of spices. The next thing I would say is some kind of leafy green. It's probably dandelion green. I love dandelion greens. I just think that they're fantastic in flavor. I also love that they grow everywhere. You know, they're in my yard, but I don't eat them because I live in Brooklyn and, you know, there's all sorts of stuff in the yard at night. (laughs) But, you know, I, I do say any kind of dark leafy green would be my second top food. And then the third is coffee because I can't do anything (laughs) unless I've had my coffee. So that goes, that's always there. And I take my coffee culture super seriously. Love yeah, it. so that would those would be my top three. I know. I kind of i I don't drink coffee. I never have. And then, like you know, when I I don't know, maybe ten years, fifteen years ago, when I would do like internships and I was just graduating from college, people would always say like, "Oh, you don't drink coffee now, but you will. Just wait, you will." <laughs> and I never, I've never gotten into it. But then now people are saying, "Oh, when you have kids, like just wait, you will." You know. So maybe if I have kids, um, but I yeah, I know that like most people love their coffee and I'm like, oh, maybe I need to get into it. I wish I could because I love coffee so much, but it's like, it just gives me the worst headaches. And it's funny because right now we have an intern and she has a podcast on coffee. Like she loves coffee so much. Mm. And I was like, oh, think about what kind of article ideas you want to write for the site. And she was like, oh, I would love to do one on coffee. And I'm like, perfect. Let's do that. And then she's like, listen, because she's going to come and help us out in the studio tomorrow. She's like, all right, well, I'm going to get your coffee orders for tomorrow. Like, what kind of coffee do you want? And I'm like, we don't drink coffee. That's cute. Do you drink mushrooms by chance? Yeah. We do for yeah. Sigmatic. We yeah, we do for Sigmatic, yeah. but um they have like even they have like this cacao, it's like a hot chocolate mushroom blend. Mm-hmm. And I think they all they do they have like um coffee mushroom blends too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah they, do. they do. Yeah, like the cacao. And the turmeric latte is so good. Yeah, it's Oh my god. It's, yeah. We, it's, it's not as strong with the caffeine which I like because like just straight up coffee yeah. I can't do. Yeah, I was. We mm-hmm. were on the plane yesterday, and I have because um, they've been a podcast sponsor, and I have the Four Sigmatic like a, a tote bag with the mushroom on it. And then this guy sitting next to me was like, "Oh, I just bought a bunch of their stuff. How is it?" And I was telling him about the turmeric latte because it's yeah, it's like the perfect like creamy nightcap. But anyway, I yeah, I I've tried coffee, and it just same with Wendy because of my history of chronic headaches. It hasn't been the best for yeah. me, but I want to get back into it. Okay. Next question <laughs> <laughs> about, about wellness. Wellness is often portrayed as someone who doesn't look like any of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what is your definition of wellness? What does wellness mean to you as a Black woman? Yes. So, you know, Wellness for me is a combination of my body, like my physical earthly body, 
my mind and my soul. I have to say, like truth, it took me some years, probably even to be like well into my undergrad, but I actually felt good in my own body specifically because of this dominant idea or mainstream idea that wellness is this, you know, tall, slender, white woman with light brown to blonde hair who does yoga. And I never fit that. I was always strong and muscular, you know, powerful. And and I always was ashamed of that. Now I'm like, well, my goodness, you know, I, I love my body. I feel very comfortable in my skin and I'm incredibly grateful for what I'm able to do, my, uh, my physical ability that my body allows me to get up and run or jump or cycle or be with my children and my husband and my family. And so for me, wellness is really continuing to be able to have the body that allows me to move through space in a way that feels good, to feel good about myself in my mind. And if I don't feel good to say like, you know what, that's okay. Let's take a moment and then I can continue to move through. And then also to have some sound spirituality, right? So that I feel grounded kind of in who I am, who's come before me. And all of that together, I think is for me, the definition of wellness. You'll notice that there's not really a mention of food or nutrition because for me, I feel it's much more about feeling good in my physicality and being able to be present for me and honoring my individual experience in a positive and meaningful, mindful and intentional way. Yes. By the way, I love your workout posts that you do. I know. <laughs> I was just thinking about that when you were saying I'm like, you're damn, strong. I was like, yeah, you look so <laughs> strong. Okay. So you're in media a lot. And I know you're also addre- you're always addressing like the latest food trends, the latest nutrition trends. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about the trends that you're over. You're like, I'm done with this. Not here for it. Tell us about some of those. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I'm done, like absolutely 100% done, shut the door, <laughs> throw it out in the trash with trends that cut out large food groups yeah. just because. So done with that, right? I'm like, really? Can we put that to bed already? Like, I mean, if there is like a reason that you're doing it, if it's medically supervised, if you know what I mean, like there's, I just don't get it. And people will come so often. I just need to cut this out. For what? why do you need to cut it out? Like, you know what I mean? And sometimes I really do give it like that. I'm like, for what? What's the reason? The next trend that I'm so not into is this lack of individualization, Mm. right? Like, can we get rid of BMI already? You know what I mean? Can we get rid of some of those like anthropometric measures that go into people's charts and then they just keep getting perpetuated and used as if that's like the benchmark? Can we just throw it out? So I think those are the two that I'm really ready to be done with. (laughs) I'm just like looking up. So yesterday there's this woman on Instagram. Her (laughs) handle is low.carb.love. And she posted, she's all about like, yeah, just disordered eating basically. So she posted OMAD for weight loss. It's a diet that's one meal a day. It says (gasps) fast 23 hours daily. 
one meal a day, one hour to eat, keto, intuitively eat, drink coffee, tea, sparkling water, best without sweetener. And she's like, literally, that's her whole page is like this, oh, it's Omad, I guess, one meal a day diet. We posted it because I thought it was a joke. And I go to her page and it's like, no, she's like dead serious. She's like currently been fasting 72 hours. She's telling all of her followers, yeah, like, and then like, I've been fasting 72 hours, like, and everyone's like, yeah, I'm at 48 hours, or I'm going to do 82 next week. And it's just ridiculous. Mm. And I I don't understand how anyone can take this seriously, but she has 255,000 followers. What? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's all See, about, like, I lost this all this part- weight. Oh, my gosh. I have so much to say about that. I don't think there's enough time. No. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's, right? Uh, no, but like, that's, See, but that's, like, oh. yeah there's no words it's almost just I again I thought it was a joke and we posted and everyone's like oh my god is this serious so we just have to be mindful about who we are following out there and and even like gently which I felt like it was gentle I don't know maybe it was rude but I said like this is dangerous like please stop promoting this like you don't have any credentials that I know about if you do what are they Mm -hmm. but we have to just do better as like a society with like really being able to weed out what is absolute garbage and not give it attention. And that goes back to also consumption too, right? So like when we think about what we consume, it's not just what we put into our mouth, just like you said. All of that leads into, you know, kind of internalized feelings. If you're allowing yourself to consume those kinds of negative images on a regular and consistent basis, well, that's very damaging. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. And it's just like, what's the point of life then is my no, question. Like what no, is, there's no point right? anymore. <laughs> it's like your all. life goal not is to at, maintain this body that probably isn't supposed to be like, isn't what your body is meant to look like. I don't get it right. anyway. And then whatever right. I could go off on, that could be a whole episode, honestly. Um, <laughs> that could be a podcast itself. That would also stop me from like doing me, which is like the other morning I woke up and I was like, oh, I feel like making ceviche. It was six o'clock in the morning and I made ceviche because I wanted to. Like, you know, I need to live my life so that I can, if I have that movement or that feeling, I can just express myself like that. No, I can't just, no, definitely not. No. Absolutely not. (laughs) Okay. So in brighter news, you're coming out with a cookbook, which we're really excited about. So just let us know a little bit more about that and why you decided it was important for you to create this cookbook. Absolutely. Yes. So I'm coming out with a cookbook and it is a Southern comfort food cookbook for people living with diabetes. And I was approached to write the book and I was really grateful for the opportunity because one of the things that I'm very clear in the book is that I use recipes and flavors that are traditional to the South, Latin America, Caribbean, and Africa. So it's really the diaspora and flavors that we love and we know without saying like any of it is bad, right? Because there's kind of this history of demonizing Southern food, right? Saying like it's unhealthy, it's no good, but actually it is, you know, the basis of soul food really is things that came from the ground. And the things that came from the ground are fruits, vegetables, whole grains, grades in general. And I want to celebrate that because I really want us to get back to feeling 
good about eating and food. You know, there a study came out, I feel like two, maybe four or five months ago. So let's just say some months ago, looking at how people feel guilty when they eat. Mm. If so if a large proportion of this country feeling guilty about their food, I want to be part of the movement that helps you to feel good about your food. I don't want to continue to push the guilt. And I definitely do not want to be part of this paradigm that is telling people that, look, your cultural food and food pathways are bad and you're bad because you're sick. (laughs) You Mm. know what I mean? And I don't want to use that language. And that's kind of how people talk about people who are living with diabetes. Well, you're sick. That's not true, right? Let's take that language off the table. You are a person who's living with diabetes and that's it. You're not defined by it, right? We don't use it as an adjective, right? We, we get rid of all of that. We don't talk about it as controlling it. So I want to get rid of that language. And so I was really clear in this cookbook that I wanted to have succulent, juicy, flavorful foods that are great to eat. And they're folded into a book for people who are living with diabetes. That sounds so delicious. Mm -hmm. I can't wait (laughs) to check it out. And we're going to make sure that we include it in the show notes so that y'all can all check it out. And I'm sure that these recipes are going to be great for everyone, not just people that have diabetes, because I'm just like, oh my God, I'm already ready to make all your recipes, girl. I will tell you that there, you know, tested every single recipe myself, a hundred recipes. And there were some mornings that I got up and I was like, Ooh, life is good. (laughs) I did nine recipes in one day. And they were like, especially when I hit the seafood chapter. Oh my goodness. I know. Cause oh, when we were talking my. on the phone, you're like, girl, I haven't left my house in like three weeks because I'm just testing. <laughs> well, I'm happy to hear that it is ready to be released and we're going to make sure that we let everyone know where to find it. Um, Maya, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much for hopping onto our podcast and sharing all of your knowledge with our listeners. Well, Wendy and Jeff, I thank you both for the work that you do for your position in our community. You're extraordinary women, and I'm so happy to call you colleagues. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and friends. I should say that too, right? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're super sweet. (laughs) Thank you, Maya. TTYL. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Food Heaven Podcast. If you like this episode, make sure that you rate and review us. Listen up to this listener review by Ellie Baby or BBY, I'm not sure. (laughs) I found these wonderful ladies two days ago and I've already listened to seven episodes. I love them. They focus on being inclusive in the wellness space, which is super refreshing. I'm very grateful for the information they're sharing. I've told all my friends about them. I think we should be best friends. I'm down, girl. Let me know. I find myself smiling constantly while listening, agreeing with everything these sweet women are saying. Keep up the amazing work. Also, make sure to connect with us online. We changed our Instagram handle recently, so we are at Food Heaven. We dropped the show. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Facebook, we're at Food Heaven Made Easy, and Twitter, we are at Food Heaven Show. Our podcast is released every Wednesday, and in each episode, we cover tips and tricks for how to make lifelong changes that help you live a healthier, more balanced life. We also interview leading experts in the fields of health and nutrition to pick their brains on how to cultivate a healthy life that you love. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.
Bye.